Good morning and welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nahum Siegel Network, NahumSiegel.com. And yes, it's been a while. We are post-election day 2022. I want to welcome myself back, welcome you back. It's good to be out there once again. I have this conflict when I'm in the middle of doing campaigns, don't really like to do a show. It's hard to divorce yourself from the what's going on within campaigns at the time, not to talk about it, kind of have that hard-nosed partisanship hat that you have to wear or that hard-nosed candidate hat that you have to wear at the same time trying to do a show that's both informative and revealing without actually revealing too much about what's going on. So obviously it was important to do a 2022 campaign recap. Uh, And of course there's, Israeli elections and the U.S. elections that happened over the past week. Incredible time in politics. Going to put Israeli elections to the side. We kind of all know what happened, kind of the expectations. But what happened here on Election Day 2022, this past Tuesday, November 8th? Well, it's really hard to say exactly what happened. I mean, what didn't happen is this. Uh, Number one is control of the Senate is yet to be decided. Control of the House is most likely going into the Republicans, although it's not mathematically impossible for the Democrats to retain control, although it's improbable, incredibly improbable. And if the Republicans do take the majority, which I expect they will, it will be a very slim majority. In fact, in fact, it is likely to be said that and I know we were all focused on the New York state governor's race and the New York state races, that improbably New York will be the deciding factor of, let's say, the five close seats that were won by Republicans in New York state on the strength of a strong, incredibly strong showing from Congressman, soon to be former Congressman Lee Zeldin, who I had the pleasure of spending time with and working for on the campaign trail. It will be on the strength of that strong run in in deep blue New York State that will have potentially delivered the majority to and potentially the speaker's gavel to Kevin McCarthy. Although, who knows exactly who will be the speaker when it comes down to it, uh, because you need 218 votes in order for that to happen. And the Republican conference over the past decade has become an unruly bunch. And who knows you know what else might happen given the fact that there's clearly disappointment on the part of the Republican Party that expected to have a banner midterm year, a banner midterm year, an incredible midterm year. Some were talking about 50 seats to take given the environment, given the inflation, given the unpopularity of President Joseph Biden, given all the things that were going on with, the let's say, the intangibles, the non-issues of Voters generally being unhappy with those that are in power. And with all that, Democrats still manage to hold on in many different races unexpectedly. So a couple big picture items to think about, you know, try and give some perspective. And it's only two days afterwards. Try to give some perspective on Election Day two thousand. 22 and some of those big themes. Um, So number one, I mean, I just want to, I guess, talk about the marquee race. We'll start with the marquee race of the Senate, which was supposed to be 
the Pennsylvania U.S. Senate race, celebrity candidate Dr. Mehmet Oz, also known as Dr. Oz, in Pennsylvania, the ultimate swing state, if you will, and against John Fetterman, the lieutenant governor, a very unorthodox looking type of politician given to hoodies, the goatee, 6'8", the men's, and the guy had a stroke right before the primary election. Now, the both primaries were were a little bit um, surprising in in a way, and we'll get to that in a second, but I do want to introduce to everybody kind of the Trump factor, which is the President Trump factor in the race. I think that and a lot of Republicans feel this way, is they were all set to cruise. And then somehow, somewhere, someone advised President Trump, former President Trump, that it would be a good idea to announce that he was going to run for election on 2024 on the eve of the midterms. And somehow... Somewhere, somebody felt that this was – now, he, of course, he put it off to November 15th. But once you bring President Trump as the referendum and voters make it the litmus test on whether they like Trump or not versus whether they like Biden or not, well, once we're talking about you in a way, you know, kind of harking back to 2016, the more they were talking about Hillary Clinton, the more voters were willing to vote Republican. The more they were talking about Trump, the less they were willing to vote Republican. And I don't think that's changed at all in 2022. We're almost six years later, and he remains that type of figure. But I want to set the stage for a second. Just a quick quick vignette, not a vignette, sorry, a quick uh, clip from President Trump in an interview that happened right uh, right before election day that he gave to Sky News. Well, I think if they win, I should get all the credit. And if they lose, I should not be blamed at all. Okay. But it'll probably be just the opposite. Uh, When they win, I think they're going to do very well. I'll probably be given very little credit, even though in many cases I told people to run. Okay. Well, we'll cut that off in the middle because it's a much longer interview. But you heard it here. Uh, These were Trump's handpicked candidates. And go back to Pennsylvania for a second. Is that... His ticket, which is Doug Mastriano for governor and Dr. Oz for Senate, were the ones that he picked to win those primaries, and they ended up winning. Now, a more mainstream and more electable, some will certainly say, candidate was David McCormick, a uh, Pennsylvanian, as opposed to Oz, who was from New Jersey, actually. Uh, less of a celebrity, but certainly a wealthy self-funder himself, but who had been uh, who's a veteran, successful businessman, and with with roots in Pennsylvania, probably more electable. It seemed more electable, but they had a razor thin primary in the end. McCormick bowed out. Also, one would say that the on the Democratic side, Connor Lamb, a congressman from Western New York, uh, Western Pennsylvania, that is, from the Pittsburgh suburbs, was seen as more electable in the general election. And you had the kind of these two polarizing candidates running against each other, Oz and Fetterman, and it really attracted attention from around the country also because of Oz's himself celebrity. But let's just talk about the perspective. Now it's Fetterman clearly, 
uh, has won this race. This race is over. This is not like some of the other Senate races in Arizona, in Nevada, which are still potentially too close to call, although it does look in like in Arizona that Republicans, I decided that Democrat Mark Kelly will hold on. And potentially in uh, in Nevada that uh, the Republican Adam Laxalt might uh, flip that seat. Now, this is now Pennsylvania is a flip. Now, Pennsylvania is Pat Toomey, who is retiring, who is a one of the few Republicans, a very conservative Republican. Pat Toomey used to run the Club for Growth, which is one of the most conservative Republican organizations, outside organizations. Now, Pat Toomey himself voted for impeachment for President Trump and then decided to retire. He had enough of Washington. And his quote after the election uh, kind of uh, pulled no punches. And I'll give it to you. Last night across the country was a terrible night for Donald Trump and an excellent night for Governor DeSantis. The more MAGA a candidate was, the more they tended to underperform even in their own states. I don't think there's a discreet moment where the party breaks with Trump in one fell swoop. I think Donald Trump's influence gradually but steadily declines. And I think it accelerates after the debacle he was responsible for to some degree. And that really starts with Dr. Oz is picking a candidate who had such high negatives, who really was, again, from New Jersey. And Fetterman's campaign exploited that. Now, John Fetterman had a stroke. He was disabled. He should, the Republicans should have run away with this race in this type of environment. Instead, they lost. And as Mitch McConnell said a couple months ago, candidate quality matters. They probably elected, or I'm sorry, nominated some of the least electable candidates in this cycle. Uh, Herschel Walker in Georgia, uh, a flawed candidate. All the Half the campaign was about how many illegitimate children he had or how many abortions that he encouraged his various girlfriends to have. And I don't think that's what you want to be talking about when people want to talk about the economy and people want to be talking about Joe Biden and they don't want now. That's going to a runoff and we'll see because the whole world once again will go to Georgia that we will see the runoff like we did in 2020. Uh, Dan Baldick, a army general in New Hampshire running against Maggie Hassan, who was seen as one of the most vulnerable and Governor Sununu wanted to challenge, but you know he didn't quite see eye to eye with President Trump, so he didn't want to. He didn't want to run. Uh, Baldick was at one time said that Joe Biden was not the legitimate president. Then he decided that the 2020 election was fair. Could make up his mind. He lost badly. Uh, on top of that, you had the best candidate probably for the Senate seat in Arizona would be term limited Governor Doug Ducey, but he also crossed. He also clashed with Trump on the 2020 election and didn't want to get himself into that Republican primary. Instead, they nominated Blake Masters, who now trails Mark Kelly. Uh, Masters being in a little bit of an unusual uh, candidate in some degree, first-time candidate with some very, very interesting views. Again, not nominating the strongest candidate in a great environment in order to make it happen. Now, J.D. Vance winning in Ohio, uh, he won an eight-point victory, which is exactly kind of what Trump won in 2020. But at the same time, Governor Mike DeWine, who was not a certainly not a Trump acolyte and somebody that Trump criticized repeatedly, won re-election by 25 points. And now the rest of your ticket really matters. And let's go back to Pennsylvania once again, because we want to talk about it for a second. 
is that in Pennsylvania, Doug Mastriano, again, endorsed by President Trump, was an election denier who was there on January 6th at the Capitol. And let's just say he ran a campaign to that was not refused to talk to the media, uh, ran a thinly veiled anti-Semitic campaign against Josh Shapiro, who was actually, I don't know how thinly it was veiled, uh, criticized Josh Shapiro, the attorney. The attorney general, now governor-elect of Pennsylvania, for sending his children to Jewish day school. Yes, in case you hadn't heard about that, here we have a major party candidate in a major state criticizing the decision of a public official for sending their children. Now, Republicans are supposed to stand for school choice, of course but criticizing the decision for them to send their kid to yeshiva. Now, never said Jewish school, just said elitist school. Now, maybe elitist, you know, globalist, these kinds of terms don't stick out at you on the face, but certainly in the context, they should. And he had ties to Andrew Torba of a website called Gab, which is a white supremacist type website. Torba has criticized Jews and others. Um, really just a mess. I mean, how do you run in a state like Pennsylvania thinking that? And of course, of course, he got he got schlacked. And just to continue what Pat Toomey said, Mastriano's loss was an epic was on an epic scale. It is very hard for down down ballot races to overcome that, Toomey said. And I think that that is uh, I think that's the case. Um, now, President Trump endorsed 330 endorsements in this cycle. Uh it's hard to know what the party will say about that. At the same time, Ron DeSantis, and I think that perhaps this is what Trump was thinking, that wanting to make an announcement ahead of Ron DeSantis's massive victory in Florida, together with Marco Rubio, an absolutely massive victory where he won heavily Democratic areas like Miami-Dade County, first governor to carry that county, totally upset the political paradigm that had existed. The Republican Party in Florida has continues to add members and not slip in registration. And DeSantis seems to have a brand of conservatism that many many Republicans are able to gravitate towards whether or not they were Trump supporters. And, you know, we see that with that there is a reservoir of voters out there who are willing in the Republican Party and maybe even some independents and crossover voters who are willing to Embrace Republican candidates, even those that are pro-Trump, if they are, you know, not full on MAGA. And you have that uh, certainly in uh, Georgia. Governor Brian Kemp ran way ahead of Herschel Walker. Brian Kemp ran against Stacey Abrams in a rematch four years ago. He only won by one point by by less than one percent. That was a that was kind of the first one where election fraud. You know, was claimed on the part of the Democrats there. Stacey Abrams really never fully accepted the fact that Kemp was the legitimate governor of Georgia. But Kemp won by eight points this time, a very convincing victory. And he had a primary from former Senator David Perdue that was backed by President Trump. And Kemp, no, you know, full speed ahead, conservative record, didn't change, uh, attracted a lot of voters and a lot of Georgians on that. Will Herschel Walker be able to capture those Kemp voters in order to, who didn't, who came out for Kemp and didn't come out for him 
the first time. Will he be able to capture them in the runoff or will they stay home? It remains to be seen. Now, of course, we can't lay this all out at the hands of, of the Trump factor and what – again, in the end, he did not announce for president. He did not do that. But maybe perhaps it was something that raised the antenna of certain – Democrats to get off the couch and participate in the midterms when they were kind of ambivalent about the administration of Joe Biden. And that's often the case in the midterms where the party in power tends to stay home a little bit more than the party out of power. But let's talk about the House for a second. And let's talk about kind of the measuring of the drapes that existed on the part of the Republicans on the, and on the House side. Now, Kevin McCarthy certainly was had a huge election night party in D.C. planned, and he was ready to declare victory as many many reporting as early as 10 p.m. He didn't take the he didn't take the podium until 2 p.m. at uh, 2 a.m. Excuse me. Apparently, they wanted to cut off the alcohol at 1 a.m. They had to, I guess, extend the bartending time at the party, and. He basically said he wasn't ready to declare victory. He said, when we wake up in the morning, we will know that we will have the magic number of 218. Now, who knows whether that is the case? I mean, whether uh, many Republicans within the House Republican conference will continue to support that leadership team that did not take them to the Republican wave, to the red wave, the red tsunami that they were expecting. And you sit there and you don't know how voters are actually going to vote until they vote. Um, we look at, you know, we can't divine the envelopes or on the absentee ballots as, the, as they were until it actually happens. And it's one of those things that we continue to, you know, not know in politics just based on party affiliation. It doesn't always work. But, you know, at the same time, we have to, we have to look at some of the other pieces here. One of the other things that, sticks out on a very profound and you know cynical level in politics is what the Democrats did in meddling in Republican primaries. Meddling, I don't mean necessarily a bad word. It's just a fact. They meddled. I mean, that's a, by putting up money, you know, again, go back to Doug Mastriano. Doug Mastriano essentially had no money, no campaign really to speak of, but benefited from a significant amount of advertising from the DNC, from the Democratic National Committee, in order to prop him up because they felt that he would be the best opponent for Josh Shapiro in the general election. Guess what? They were right. They had that mark. And they did that in a couple, in several different um, uh, races. But again, Democrat Josh Shapiro. Attorney General, go back to that, won 56 to 42 in a state like Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania being that 50-50 state, the kind of state that we're always looking to see in the end who is going to win because that's the key to the presidency. Uh, much more than Ohio these days, probably on equal were, and historically, you know, Georgia has always been a red state. Arizona's always been a red state. Now those are a little bit closer. Pennsylvania has always been that classic quintessential swing state. But Governor J.B. Pritzker in Illinois uh, was considered to be vulnerable during the cycle. Darren Bailey, the DNC, helped him as well, and he was a far the far right candidate over a suburban mayor, African American, who was running in the primary as a Republican, seen as much more palatable to the general election. Well, Darren Bailey won, and then he lost the race fifty four to forty three. 
Wes Moore won over Republican Dan Cox. Dan Cox won a primary over um, – Moore had, a tw- had won by about more than 20 points in this case. Dan Cox had a primary against Larry Hogan's handpicked successor. Larry Hogan is the successful two-term Republican governor of blue, very blue Maryland, which has a history of electing Republican governors, but of the more moderate type. Larry Hogan, antagonist of Trump, and Trump backed Cox, and Cox won with help from the DNC, and ultimately lost the election by 22 points. In Michigan was a famous rape. Peter Meyer, who was a um, Michigan's third third district. Uh, Peter Meyer was one of the House Republicans who voted to impeach Trump. He lost a primary to John Gibbs, a Trump administration official, where Trump uh, bought it. Uh, but he had the money. His money came about $400,000, I believe, came in that race to help him win that primary, and he ended up losing the general election in a Republican seat. So Democrat Hillary Shelton won that seat 55 to 42, not even a, not even close, and that was a swing seat. And in fact, um, the last one, and as I mentioned, was New Hampshire, but not the Senate seat where that happened, but New Hampshire's second district Democratic Representative Annie Kuster beat Republican Bob Burns, which was who was who also won a primary, a contested primary. Now there was another seat in New Hampshire as well. Um, I'm not. I think that one is still too close to call, which had two far right Republicans running. I'm not sure what the Democrats played in that one, but that's it. Um, out of the 36 House toss ups, as of as of last night, 36 House toss ups, 18 were won by Democrats. Seven run by Republicans, 11 still too close to call. That is a shocker in a midterm election because all the intangibles, all that momentum is supposed to go towards the party out of power. Now, let's talk about New York for a second. Let's talk about Lee Zeldin and you know what is going to be a small, a narrow loss, maybe somewhere in the area of three to five points because not all the votes are in, in New York. Uh, <clears throat> as I mentioned you know, how does a Republican credibly go up in a state where there are 6.5 million registered Democrats and only 2.9 million registered Republicans, only 3 million blanks? Even if you add every independent voter, any non-registered voter, you still can't beat the 6.5 million Democrats. Excuse me. Now, how do you get there? What's the math to get there? Well, you need a certain combination of votes around the state. And it seems that the turnout was just high enough, just high enough that Lee Zeldin could not prevail, despite the fact that he made it really, really close. And essentially, Governor Hochul had to send out the SOS of bringing in the big guns, bringing in uh, President Biden, Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Kamala Harris, all the Democratic luminaries had to come in to save New York. I imagine many strategists out there were extremely frustrated with what go with the malpractice that happened on the part of the Democratic Party in New York. With regard to, uh, with regard to this race, which ultimately, in certainly um, everything is one is related to the other. Certainly, in this case, the five Republican seats, actually four pickups, and one which was a determined out in the in the Syracuse area, which should have been a Democratic pickup. It was the seat belonging to John Katko, the moderate a moderate that was seems to be going Republican. And in that case, 
that's the, you know, you, in a sense, it should have been five. Now, Democrats have only themselves to blame for any colossally bad redistricting process. As Howard Wolfson, uh, a longtime Democratic strategist, aide to uh, Hillary Clinton, he said it was a terrible night in New York. It's infuriating that a night as good as it was for Democrats overall is undone by arrogance and incompetence here. Now, I'm not sure who specifically the arrogance was and the incompetence was. I mean, I think there's plenty to go around. But uh, an unnamed strategist talked about the fact that it was a disastrous, redistricting process. The attempt to pack Republicans a handful of seats. They wanted the Republicans to get down to three seats. Okay, they were so greedy in redistricting and were so egregious in violating the Constitution, the court had to throw the lines out, and now we have these ungerrymandered lines. Now, at the same time, on the other side, you have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her ally, Mike Gianaris, who was the culprit behind the redistricting process. AOC's quote, her takeaway is, it's no secret that an enormous amount of party leadership in New York State is based on big money and old school calcified machine style politics that creates a very anemic voting base that is disengaged and disenfranchised. She was clear eyed about a need to rebuild the party apparatus from the bottom up. And Gianaris, if you stand for something and fight for it, your voters believe that you're not just trying to be a lighter version of your Republican opponent. They come out and they vote. So I don't know that anybody looking at the New York race really believes any of this. I think if you're in it and you're sitting there, you realize that the reason that Republic, that Democrats had a poor showing was because they just didn't address the issues that voters cared about. And that vote, that chiefly among them was crime. They focused almost ads entirely on abortion. And I think that that could have been by a couple percentage points, the difference in this race and a lot of races uh, had the Supreme Court not overturned Roe v. Wade, which was immensely popular. And then Republicans after that not got off the deep end and trying to restrict abortion in all cases and out there saying that. And then this asinine Lindsey Graham amendment of making it a federal issue, because I think that that totally uh, brought it back as a, as a big issue. But if you look at the shift in margin in New York from 2020 to 2022, you see a remarkable shift in almost every single county towards Republicans. Okay. Even in Brooklyn, 2020, 50, uh, Joe Biden won by 55% in Brooklyn. Now it's huge, but Hochul only won by 43%. Nassau County, D plus 10. Okay. In Nassau County, Lee Zeldin won by 11 points. That's a 21 point swing. Even Westchester County, Okay, where Hochul won by 20%, close to 20%, I think it was 58-42 to 18%. The margin was 36% there. And, you know, you go on, um, Rockland County was a D, Democrat, Joe Biden plus 1.7%, went to 12% for Zeldin on top of that. So an incredible shift that you saw amongst every single county, I believe there wasn't a single county in the 62 counties of New York State that actually went bluer in 2022. And Zeldin spoke to things that the voters cared about, which was quality of life, crime, taxes, a lot of people. And he stuck to that message and didn't talk about Trump. Now, yes, there were a lot of people who, in the end, probably got off their couches and said, I can't vote for a Trump ally or allow a Trump ally to win in New York. And I think that that ultimately, maybe he peaked too soon 
and the Democrats started pressing the panic button and getting the turnout. Now, if you want to get into nitty gritty of it, very simply, is this? Do you have? Yes, Zeldin hit the thirty percent that he needs to for a Republican to win in New York City. It was better than anybody else had done. Um, just to contrast, Zeldin got five hundred sixty-six thousand more votes than Marcus Molinaro did in 2018. That's an enormous haul of votes overall. But in the end, it wasn't enough to overcome massive, uh, big turnout, not massive turnout, but big turnout in Brooklyn and Manhattan counties that went, you know, 70 plus percent for, especially Manhattan, 70 plus percent for Hochul and just could not overcome some of those issues. Just a quick note. I know that there's this, well, I'll call it Michigas because uh, out there on the part of, you know, so the, the, the seems to be the battle of the Hasidic groups out there within the, uh, it became a, the narrative of the campaign, uh, Satmar Aronim and Square going with Hochul, you know, everybody else going with, uh, going with Zeldin. And of course, the Satmar Rebbe had to, Ravaran had to explain himself by saying everybody else has been poisoned by Trumpism. That's why they're Republicans. Number one, let me just say, the Aronim for years, particularly in KJ, were hardcore Republicans. They were Republicans for years. Uh, I don't want to hear any of that. I mean, that's just the ignoring of history, you know, that they can't, that you can't be partisan to one, to one party. But on top of that, um, on top of that, and I think that it's a, a strange thing to kind of tout your, um, uh, it's kind of a strange thing to tout your success because you didn't deliver. And the numbers coming out of Curious Joel are not were not particularly strong for Hochul. I think she won uh, she won Curious Joel by a thousand votes, uh, so it's not demonstrating a ton of control over there. The Muncie Sotmer uh, went heavily for uh, went heavily for Zeldin. Zeldin won ninety percent of most of the parts of there of of Muncie, as well as the Borough Park Sotmer and Williamsburg Sotmer went in 80 in an 80 90% range. So whatever you think you delivered on behalf of the governor, uh the numbers don't lie. I'm not expecting the rabbit to be in uh, in touch with the minutiae of what how his Hasidim voted, but his Hasidim did not vote in accordance with his wishes and certainly not in 100% accordance with his wishes. So if they in fact are still uh if they are still brainwashed by Trumpism, it's his flock as well that needs to be disinfected from that. And that's it for this week here on Spin Class, here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Joseph. See you next week. <clears throat>